Welcome to Prestige Performance. This is episode 54. I am Jimmy Williams, a sports psychology consultant and trainee cognitive behavioural psychotherapist. To me, what you do off the pitch is as important as what you do on the pitch. One such area to consider when you look at ways to optimise your performance might be related to the idea of sleep, which leads me to this week's guest, Nick Littlehales, an elite sports sleep recovery coach. Nick has worked with Alex Ferguson, Manchester United, Arsenal, Manchester City, Real Madrid, England and Team Great Britain in a career spanning over three decades. Through his work, he helps individuals maximise the quality and consistency of their sleep and in turn their overall performance. In the next hour or so, we speak about common sleep myths, reframing our perception of sleep and the idea of introducing controlled recovery periods into our day. I found this really interesting. I hope you do too. Nick, you are extremely welcome to my podcast. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Not a problem at all, Jimmy. For my listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with your work, could you give me a brief overview of the nature of your work, please? Um, when I first fell into the sleep industry, um, for all sorts of reasons, it wasn't specific, um, but in my travels, um, and the, the occupations that I got involved with within that industry, uh, one of those being a director of a big comfort group company. Um, I think I found that uh, there was lots of misunderstandings around sleep. And so taken for granted was pretty much uh, what everybody um, adopted. So I fell into the world of sport purely by accident um, at a particular time in my mid forties. And I started to just have uh, a conversation about my interpretations of those things. And, and that factored itself into becoming a sort of performance criteria inside of sport. So actually just one day, uh, the media, uh, picked up that I was working in around some, uh, premiership football clubs at the time. And so they gave me the title as, you know, there's coaches in sport. So this guy's talking about sleep. So he must be a sleep coach. So my my title was was made up. Um, today, there's lots of sleep coaches around in various different guises, including clinical people. But the work that I do is, is simply just to try and uh, define, to redefine somebody's approach, to sort of take the emphasis away from uh, what happens when you're asleep, when you're sort of out of control, and try to bring some of that um, into their everyday approach, uh, trying to get them to understand that there's certain things that they will do every day that does add up to your brain being able to help you recover when you're in a sleep state. So my focus is more on human activities during the day not necessarily focused on what happens when you're actually asleep. So I think sleep coach can be a little bit deceptive, a bit misleading. Um, it's more like a human recovery coach in sport. <laughs> you mentioned a number of things there that I want to come back to later. You touched on the idea that maybe there are misconceptions around sleep that most of us buy into. You also mentioned the idea of what we do during the day is important for sleep. Mm -hmm. 
but I have a lot of United listeners on this podcast. I think I'll stick with that for a moment. Am I correct in saying in the early parts of your career, you had a conversation with Alex Ferguson? Um, yes, it, it, it it's, um, you know, like I said, I, I, I'd been in around the sleep industry. I've been around the clinical side. I've been around watching people sleep and, and all that sort of stuff. And this taken for granted approach to this health pillar. So I suppose I just had enough of the sleep industry and maybe a bit of a midlife crisis in my forties, but I was a director of a big company called Slumberland and I decided I wanted to leave and I was going to go off and do something completely different. So while I was in my sort of 12 month, you know, a period of leaving that job um i did something uh for the local football club called oldham athletic and i i signed a check to sponsor their shirts to put the company's name on the front of their shirts mainly for the workforce because my office was in oldham uh, my uk office in oldham northwest in the uk so by doing that i ended up going along to some football events and that's where I bumped into Alex Ferguson, because I'm an Aston Villa fan, but I wasn't aware that there was a breeding ground for UK and particularly Manchester United players in the local clubs in the Northwest. So I bumped into Alex Ferguson and it was simply just, uh, you know, oh, you're the director of this company sponsoring this club. Da, 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 da. Thank you very much. And all that sort of thing. But then it just, I just asked the question, you know, do you do anything um, in your world around recovery? And he said, I, I don't think so, but I'll ask the question at the club. Uh, and that led to a conversation with the physio at the time called Dave Fever. Um, and I was asked to come in and talk to him. And we just started that, that conversation about what is happening when the players are not with the club and not with the managers and the coaches. They're away from it, you know, like sleeping and recovering. So it was, there was no specific, you know, I wasn't a sleep coach. I wasn't a, um, I was just simply having a conversation. I think, you know, because Alex Ferguson was very much uh, open-minded to lots of factors that come together to create, you know, a good organisation or team, as we know today, I think it was any other manager and any other club, that conversation would have stopped at that moment, at that event. It wouldn't have gone any further um, because there was no sports science. There was very little data collection. Um, it was a different era back in the late 90s. So it was just a completely, you know, random set of things that put me with a person like Sir Alex Ferguson, that that conversation was allowed to develop. And then with the physio, um, he was extremely interested in what sort of things could be gained uh, with this period away from, you know, the club. And that's, that's just how it started. Um, you know, I wouldn't be here today if I think it was any other person at that time. Aside of Alex Ferguson, you worked with people like Arsene Wenger at Arsenal. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to ask, for you, was it daunting 
going into such high profile organizations that were already performing well, knowing that they were kind of looking to you in a way to add something? I think there's a daunting. Uh, it was it was definitely a mixture of both, you know, because I sort of I love sport uh, like a lot of you know teenagers do uh, in my schooling years. I, I ended up doing a period of time where I was an assistant golf professional at a golf club, and I was I was coaching CEOs. It was a very posh, exclusive golf club that just happened to be local to where I was born. And so all the people I were coaching were much, much older than me, much wiser, far more experienced, CEOs, dentists, lawyers, you know, all that sort of stuff, retired, most of them. And I suppose that gave me a lot of background on how to communicate and, and be confident that they wanted, their, their interest was for them to play better golf. And if I was somebody who could help them do that, then it doesn't matter about age or experience in any particular way. It's your ability to communicate, your ability to interact with people like that. And then, you know, at a very sort of young age, around 32, I became an international sales and marketing director for a very big brand. And so you have to present yourself to large groups of people. You have to front up, you have to create strategies and all that sort of stuff. So I suppose walking into those environments was not daunting from that sense because I'd had a, a lot of experience of exposing myself in, well, let's put that a different way. It sounds a bit weird, but putting myself in front of, you know, experienced knowledge, people, and maybe a bit out of my depth. But at the same time, they were asking me to, to do this and I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, it was so... It was kind of weird because nobody was doing this, but I was. I didn't really know what I was doing. They wanted me to do what I didn't really know what I was doing. So it was kind of an explorative journey for all of us to see what would come of it. And again, you know, Arsene Wenger, um, timing. Um he was considered to be a complete maverick when it came to managing footballers and sport. So it kind of fitted in that you could actually look at something like this in his environment, whereas another manager would never have even considered it. You mentioned the idea of recovery and what we can gain from recovery. I would assume you were trying to impart this message to players. You would... Mm-hmm. maybe do educational sessions or workshops yeah yeah that's right were players resistant to your methods were they receptive to it i think um yeah it's, it's a bit of both there was um you know all about that particular timing i mean uh, manchester united had just gone and done something extremely unusual and won a treble arsene wenger had arrived on the the scene you know, and there were a, the class of 92, there were a number of individual players who were actually far more open and responsive to developing their talents, but also helping them to perform at their best, you know, more consistently. And, and in Arsenal Football Club, there was a very multicultural team, you know, Fabregas, Adibayor, 
Thierry Henry would have been one. Inside of the England squad, there's David Beckham and those types of players. They were, they were very interested in taking on board new new approaches, new techniques, and and they would respond, you know. So when Arsene Wenger's telling them they can't do this anymore, they would go, okay, they wouldn't fight it. But then on the other hand, the vast majority uh, just simply wanted to turn up and do their natural thing, and everything else really didn't matter. So it was a nice moment where, yes, I would get ridiculed, and there'd be lots of laughing, lots of joking, lots of mickey-taking going on when you've got a squad of young football players uh, in a room, in a workshop environment. But then there's always a few of them who just go, hang on a minute. If you actually want to be who you think you can be, these sort of things are going to have a massive, have a massive impact on your career, not only in the short term, but the long term. So it was kind of like that, a little bit of both. And it still remains the same today. You know, um, in football, it's more evident, I have to say. In other types of sports, um, the attitude towards the sport and to learning and and everything else, because they're not so high profile, you know? So it's, you don't get that kind of response from them because they, you know, particularly in individual sports, when they only come together as a squad every now and again, like an Olympics or a, or, you know, and even a, a World Cup, <laughs> you know, they play for their teams and everything, but then they collectively come together as a new unit um, and have to work together as a team, not as individuals. So it's a little bit of bit of both, but uh, it was always it was always good fun. But sleep, bedrooms, you know, partners, all that sort of stuff is a bit is a bit of a subject that can create quite a bit of humour and Mickey taking. Yes, I imagine so. For you, Nick, what role does sleep play in high performance, and what are some thing, some key things we need to be aware of? I think when you, there's so much uh, more research and more content around today and a lot more people talking about sleep in all sorts of ways. I think my my particular interest in high performance is, is, not, is, is redefining how you approach your 24 hours with a better understanding of yourself as a human being and the natural circadian rhythms of the day um, and how that comes together in everything that you're trying to achieve. So what, you, what you're basically doing is trying to bring sleep as a health pillar from the back end of the other health pillars and bring it more to being the first health pillar. Change its title, call it a human recovery you know, performance activity, looking at it in a way that you can't just go into a sleep state, right? There's lots of things that are going to be happening while you're in a wake state. So you just switch somebody's mindset from why would you wish to waste up to 30 plus percent of every 24 hours on a rolling basis, not getting at least 
optimizing the benefits. What's the point in that? Because if you're if you're not going through that process at night, nocturnally for some, then you are diminished. And if you're diminished, everything you do, nutritional, training, psychology, anything, managing anxiety and stress, and all of that sort of stuff is diminished. So why set targets for things when you're mentally and physically active? You know, like running and walking and exercising and eating. Those are mental and physical activities that you are awake and you can you're doing it and receiving the benefits from it. But the sleep thing, you have no control over. So why would you want to go through that process every day without getting some of those benefits? So basically try to change the conversation within the within those boundaries of what is fact and we know you can't change that but but put it in a way where they think that by doing something every day that will help the brain optimize your mental and physical recovery in that big chunk of your day which means you'll be able to go into the next role in 24 hours you know optimized as best you can be and that means you're going to keep moving forward positively even when things are quite negative even when things are very positive not to get not to over positive them you know because the downside is that is expectations so it's kind of going in going into a sleep state knowing that you have at least uh, done things today that will help your brain optimize your recovery and if you know that, you stop worrying about it. And when you stop worrying about sleep, by default, it seems to happen more consistently and sustainably than when you're worrying about it. You mentioned the idea, Nick, of reframing our perception of sleep and doing things throughout the day that might optimize our sleep. For people listening to this, and I am one of them. Often I would wake up at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. and I can't sleep and I can't get back to sleep. And then I start to think I have to sleep. And if I don't sleep and if I don't get my eight hours, I'm in trouble the next day. Can you talk to us a little bit about things we can do throughout the day to optimize our sleep? It is a, a sort of a, a big detailed answer to that, but to to try and encapsulate it, um, what I came across was, which I then termed uh, KSRIs, right? Um, and they the key sleep recovery indicators, the key sleep factors. You could put those into seven areas, you know, seven days a week, 24 seven, it's a nice number. So, but it kind of fitted. So it's a little bit of a journey of awareness, understanding, but also some of these key factors. You, the one thing that you learn about circadian rhythms is it, they are rhythms, right? They, it's an ongoing 24 hour process. It's the sun rolling around our planet. The sun doesn't care about us as human beings or anything else on this planet, but it triggers the planet to operate and function. So it has, an external clock which is the sun rolling around your postcode 
you have an internal clock that is reacting, synchronized to that process, triggering functionality. So the further and further you get away from that process, because humans keep developing things brilliantly, but we always lose sight of how far, how far we're going away from that natural process, is you just bring it back to there. So a little bit of understanding that you should have at school. Parents should then pass it on. And there was a number of factors. Um, I was aware that inside a clinical environment, the clinicians would be looking at all your brainwave patterns as your brain goes through these various stages of sleep, right? And, and some of them, which everybody will know, like deep sleep, REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement. And in some of the stages of sleep, you're pretty much in a paralyzed state. So you're in complete repair state. In other stages, it's like light sleep. So it's still recovery, but it's sort of, it's not as rejuvenating, right? So within any, any amount of time you allocate to sleep, what you're trying to do is make sure you've done certain things through your day to make those things reveal themselves. What they would look at is a 90 minute period. So they would watch your brain going through these various stages and they'd then look at the next 90 minutes as it continues to develop these stages and the next 90 minutes. Well, 90 minutes is the length of a football game and 90 minutes has a little break in between, you know, 45 minutes, 45 minutes. So it was kind of, it, you're able to look at it, is that there's certain things that we do where you do need to stop. You can't just go on for long periods of time. You need a break. You need a, a recovery period. You need to reevaluate. The brain needs to have an opportunity to stop what you were doing in the first half and put it right in the second half, maybe. And so if you think about rhythm and you think about um, sunrise and you think about sunrise is, is what starts your day, it's your anchor point, right? Then you think about your most consistent start to your day, which is your sunrise. We don't sleep outside anymore, but it's this relationship with the sun, light, and particularly triggering the start of your day and creating this internal clock and this synchronization. So if you start there, sorry, I won't go into that anymore because you get, but if you start with an anchor point, then let's say that's 6.30 because of your occupation or because of your chronotype, which I'm sure you'll probably want to touch on, is that 6.30, then segment your 24 hours up into 16 90-minute cycles. That creates these little subconscious times of what are you doing in the first 90 minutes of your 24 hours from the point when you woke up to your anchor point of 6.30? And what are you doing in those first 90 minutes from 6.30 into 8? And then 8 into 9.30, right? And you're trying to create some rhythm. You also know then that your final cycle, your wake cycle, is between 5 a.m. and 6.30. Because that's when the brain is, you know, moving to this anchor point, the sunrise, to actually wake you up. So you might wake at, you know, 5.30, 5.45, 6 o'clock. You might wake at 6.30 and put the alarm off. No? But that's your, that's your wake cycle. 
if you want five 90 minute cycles which is 7.5 hours and there's your eight right which everybody understands is is what you need so 15 minutes in 15 minutes out there's your eight hours that's five 90 minute cycles so 6 30 if you wander back you'll end up with 11 o'clock so 11 o'clock into 6 30 is five 90 minute cycles but going back to the clinical approach what you will notice is in the first two cycles you know between 11 into 12 30 into 2 a.m in those two 90 minute cycles your brain is looking for this deep sleep right it's trying to develop it it's going through all the various stages it's only around 20 percent of any period anyway well that's eight hours or an hour or 90 minutes so it's trying to find that place where you can get into that deep sleep and it'll look for it in the first cycle and the second cycle when you hit your third cycle it stops looking so hard right when you hit the fourth and fifth it's all about waking up so it's light sleep so anybody who's got trackers on their wrists or sleep apps or anything else you will notice that those trackers will not even though they're guessing they're not completely definitive but it's a good guide at this stage you will notice that it doesn't register REM or deep sleep from around two into three o'clock in the morning and there is a reason for that is because your brain is looking in those first two cycles pre-midnight and after midnight so you can get your whole 20 percent from 12 30 into 2 a.m and 2 a.m into 3 30 or you could get it between 11 and 12 30. you see what I mean it'll reveal itself there because what we know within circadian rhythms is that that's where deep sleep is normally revealed so what your focus is is on the first two cycles of your sleep is where you have tried your best from the moment you woke up to give it some opportunity in those first two cycles to go and get that deep sleep because you know it's not going to come less in the third even less in the fourth and the fifth you also know circadian rhythms and looking back at our journey on this planet that that is we have a polyphasic sleep approach there's absolutely no evidence up until we invented electric light back in the 30s and put it on our streets of humans trying to sleep in a monophasic block you know all all at night we slept in a multiphasic way you know we know about napping and siestas and things but that's why you wake up around two or three o'clock in the morning because probably maybe by accident your brain went to sleep with you it then started to look for that stuff it gathered it and now it's kind of done you know it's not over but it's kind of if you then noises temperature changes partners thoughts anything at all going to the toilet to empty your bladder you can just flick out of your sleep you feel very awake because it wasn't that long ago that you as a human being would be active at that point in that process for a cycle or two and then get some more recovery and then meet midday and then late afternoon so it, it's a big answer to your question but i hope the understanding is is if you knew about that in your schooling and your parents were aware of that and could help you with that in your formative growth years it's an amazing little thing because it completely changes your focus 
that your interest is not about how many hours you get. There are limits. You can't sleep an hour a day or two hours a day or three hours a day. You know, the target is around sort of like, you know, 30 odd percent of the 24 hours, which happens to be around eight in some sort of recovery state. But all in one block is not necessarily that natural. And the more you keep introducing things into your world in this 24-7 culture, then those things are going to make it more difficult, make it more and more difficult for you to go into an eight-hour period or six-hour period and your brain's able to get that stuff. So you you sort of, when you mentioned before about, you know, talking to to athletes or players or, or, or coaches and things, it's sort of, suddenly there's that sort of little sort of, moment when you go wow what i'm really trying to do is if i do certain things in some sort of rhythm in a flow i'm getting myself more synchronized i'm thinking about mental and physical activities and also mental and physical recovery activities so i'm actually recovering at the same level as being active because it's active recovery it, it's not going to sleep it's so throughout your day, you're able to get that balance and knowing that you've done enough. So when your brain takes over, it goes and gets that wonderful sleep. And if you do wake up at two o'clock, three o'clock, you should actually be very happy because, you know, you've probably got some of that deep sleep. You feel refreshed. I always find this fascinating and you you may argue again, but it's sort of like, how did you feel? So, well, I, I felt wide awake. I, I could go for a run. I could, you know, do my business accounts. I, I felt great, you know, but I couldn't get back to sleep. I said, well, how many times do you go to bed, try and get your eight hours, you wake up in the morning and you feel unrefreshed and unenergized for your day, but you seem to have slept for eight hours or seven hours? Or That's interesting, isn't it? So why is that happening? And that's because probably certain things you did into that particular period added up to help your brain. Your brain went and got you that 20% deep sleep. Now it's all about the rest of that recovery rolling into awake time. And you're awake, so you're done. So it kind of gives you a really strong impression. Nobody's arguing against 30 odd percent of 24 hours in recovery like sleep nobody's arguing about that at all we're not trying to get to everybody sleeps just for 20 minutes but you do need to understand that just because you allocate the time it doesn't mean to say you're going to get it right so that little bit of awareness certainly puts things in perspective and as you said with elite sport schedules it's like pilots, it's like nurses, it's like parents, it's like students. It's like, you know, our 24-7 online trading workforce. It's get your eight hours at night or you're going to suffer the consequences. Well, I work night shifts. I work multi-schedules. You know, I only got back from Argentina yesterday in the early hours of the morning and had to get on a coach and go for an open top tour around Buenos Aires. Well, I should have been asleep, shouldn't I? Because it's two o'clock in the morning. And what are all these people out here doing? So it's kind of, you start to get a lovely rhythm to your approach. And 
understanding the key factors that develops that approach and and you stop worrying about it long answer but it's difficult to to bring that down into a, a few minutes a thought actually occurred to me there often when i do wake up during the night i feel wide awake and i think about studying and i feel like i could study even though it's 3 a.m but if you think of the message we have been receiving Get your eight hours sleep, have a fixed going to bedtime, have a fixed time that you get up every day. Mm -hmm. A kind of one size fits all approach. It is a bit like that, isn't it? And yet, how much evidence have we all got? Like I mentioned, parents, you know, nurses, pilots, surgeons, you know, all of these things is you just can't apply that. So rather than creating your own random approach of trying to cope with it you've at least got some structure a platform a, a, a lovely subconscious basis is that your your world is about 16 cycles a day every 24 hours rolling seven days a week rolling 365 there's no monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday saturday there's none of that at all. It is literally you rolling through each 24 hours and doing all these little things that adds up to developing that wonderful thing. But how it looks in your world is how do you take the principles that you need 30% in recovery? So then you can just go, right, it suits me, in the example we gave before, it suits me to sleep between 12.30 and 6.30, which is four cycles and six hours, okay? That still sounds good. If I can sleep all the way through those six hours undisturbed, not going to the toilet, you know, not waking myself up, I get my deep sleep in the first cycle and a half, then I wake up, then I start my day. Then I, I think about lots of light in the morning because that triggers me. So my first 90 minutes post-sleep period, what am I doing to really get myself fully functional for the day am i thinking about little controlled recovery breaks you know a little couple of minutes just to take a little break like in a football game or like anything take a little break and give your brain an opportunity to visualize something else just for a few minutes and then come back to what you're doing you can think about a 30 minute cycle midday you know most of the people who've got siestas they don't do anything between 1 and 3 p.m yes they do they do recovery stuff you know, they, they go shopping or they go home and have lunch with the family or that, but they don't necessarily go to sleep. So it's kind of, there's an opportunity. Graveyard slot in business, Jimmy. Come on. What does it feel like? Straight after lunch, you know, your manager, your boss is trying to put all these new things across to you and you're just drifting. You're in a sort of, I'm not really in the room state. You also know late afternoon is another one. So what you do as in, say, a, a good morning chronotypes approach with a 24-7 uh, a kind of multi-schedule um, targets to achieve is going targeting sleep later, maybe 12.30, gives you a more of an unrush period, you know, in that third phase of your day into midnight. It means you can get more done in an unrushed way, be more productive, and try and implement some of the things that you need to do before you went to sleep, because you're not trying to do it at 11 o'clock or 10.30. But 
if you get more optimized recovery, then you'll go into your day more consistently better. If you're adding in little CRPs, if you think a couple of minutes, you know, two or three minutes um, every 90 minutes, and there's about six, six or nine of those in the first three phases of your day, well, that adds up to recovery. If you think about a 30-minute period, because that's 30% of 90-minute cycle, which is the nap period, don't think of it as a nap. It's just taking time out for Jimmy. It's vacant mind space. And that really helps your brain. So there's 30 minutes there. And it's not about sleeping. It's about recovery. And sometimes you might microsleep. You can fall asleep behind the wheel of a car, Jimmy. Give me a break. What's that about? You know, And that shows you that when you're in rhythm, and certain things are in place in your every 24, the brain will quite happily go, I'm going to give you a little microsleep, Jimmy. Right time, right place, in the right moments. So maybe you start thinking about 35 cycles in seven days. You're five a day. I want five 90-minute cycles or the equivalent of it, which is 7.5 hours, eight. But I gather it with six hours nocturnally, because I can keep that more consistently. Uh, these little CRPs all add up. That little 30 minutes, either midday or late afternoon, also adds up. So I'm I'm optimizing my approach to recovery, but in, in a manner that I'm able to and able to shift that around. So I've got 35 cycles. It might be 28 back-to-back 90-minute -back cycles nocturnally, balanced with seven. 30-minute cycles, which I do midday or late afternoon, or I keep it consistent. I've got 42 CRPs because I try and target, you know, six a day. So suddenly I can I can feel I didn't mention sleep once, you know, and it's and then when you, you know, jumping back, and I'll come to that conclusion, when you jump back into data collecting, to you know, all of the things measuring. Um, that we do around everything we want in a high-performance world, well, if we can see that during the next seven days, we need to make a few little adjustments, like a 30-minute period midday, another 30-minute period late afternoon, because you're going on a plane, we'll put 30 minutes on the plane, and when you land at 2 o'clock in the morning in Buenos Aires, you'll get off that plane, in the middle of the night, feeling as refreshed as if you were doing something else. And then when that's gone, you wander back to your natural rhythm again. So you can kind of see what a week that could be. You've got to take full advantage of it. But I also don't want it to be make it me feel as though it was a really tough time because it's supposed to be the most exciting time ever. And I want to take advantage of every minute. So it's kind of like, we get to a point where you can say to yourself that sometimes your whole approach is not about going to sleep at night. You know, it's, it's about, you know, what's coming. It's an exam or something's happening. Right. And so on the days, as you wander towards that, you make subtle little adjustments within that R90 framework so that you actually get to a point where you don't try and sleep the night before a big event. You know you're still going to smash it. We all experienced that. I didn't sleep at all last night. I was just so excited or I was so intimidated. So it's sort of like, I'm not even going to try and sleep Wednesday night because this is what's happening on Thursday. 
But what I'm doing is I'm doing this on Monday and I'm shifting that a little bit on Tuesday. And so when I get to that point, I don't need to worry about that nocturnal period at night because I'm already moving towards that and then I'll get back on track. So it just changes your whole perspective. And, you know, sorry for the big answer, but it, that's why some people or a lot of people would refer to it as game-changing, you know, in that thing. it's um, It sort of makes you feel as though, well, what is Nick actually talking about? It sounds like I've heard all this before, you know? You know, it, it kind of feels like I've I've heard about this stuff. And, the, and there are certain things I'm actually doing, but I didn't realise that was a KSRI. It was just, you know, I like to chill out on the bench and have my lunch. And, it, and I like doing that. Yeah, well, you know what's going on while you're doing that. That's a CRP. That's about serotonin. That's about blue light. That's about making you fully function. That's like making you happy. That's giving you everything you would want stuff on that bench eating your lunch. Wow. You do that every day or something similar or recreate it, depending on the season. And you'll be absolutely smashing it. So there is another version of Jimmy. We think we're at our best. We try and do things that keep us at our best with other, other health pillars. But the one the one that's got all of that wonderful shifting is redefining your approach to recovery. And you kind of think, I wish I'd known about that. I wish my parents knew about it because they would have done things without me knowing that would have helped me. I wish I'd known that when I started schooling. I wish I'd known that if I went to college or university. I wish I'd known that when I started to make decisions about my occupation. I wish I'd known that when I bumped into a potential lifetime partner. Um, it's all those sort of things. I just, because I probably would have done a lot of things maybe better. I probably would have done things maybe slightly differently. I probably would have not done certain things. <laughs> so it's kind of a, but it's never too late. It's never too late. It's, um, I think the evidence of of high performance and redefining your mindset about sleep is at the end of the day, there is a line of 100 meter sprinters and they're all, you know, in their nine second mark. These are the best runners on the planet. It doesn't matter what time happens in that 100 meter. It's just whether you get past it before they do. And that could be a really fine margin, tiny, tiny, tiny thousands of milliseconds, right? So if you're on that line and you've optimized your recovery, that means you optimized your training. That means you optimized everything you did. You've done everything. So you might just be quicker than the rest of them on the day, you know, because you put more things in place. And I think that applies to, to all of us is just feeling that you are you know you're at your peak that day not your ultimate peak not your perfect peak but you have got yourself to the start of your day in the best way possible and you can be confident about the rest of the day and you can also do certain things to help along that route 
It's quite passionate, aren't I? But there you go. Just for the people listening to my podcast, you have mentioned the idea of a chronotype a number of times now. What is a chronotype? How can we understand what a chronotype is? Well, it was like this thing, you know, I'm wandering around the sleep industry and I start hearing this, oh, get your eight hours or you're going to die later. And we go, well, how do I, give me a definitive approach. I said, well, you can't, you know, don't eat too late, get your bedroom at 16 to 18 degrees. And I'm going, does that apply to all the humans on this planet? Because it doesn't sound like you can do it like that. And and one of those little things was, what what's, you know, I've heard my parents and grandparents talking about owls and larks, the birds. And the owl is one and the lark is another one. What is that? He said, well, some of us are more morning types and some of us are night timers. I go, well, can I find out why that is? Because it is something that's, I certainly put myself in the characteristic of being a lark. You know, I I wake up and want to get on with my day, feel great. I I don't really like the night or the evenings, you know, because... I'd rather go to sleep and get up in the morning. <laughs> Whereas I know people who they have to drag themselves out of bed because they'd much rather start later, maybe a couple of hours later. But they also get a little second wind in the evening. And so they're quite happily, you know, being creative or studying or whatever it is at, at midnight or later. They feel completely comfortable in that 24-hour space. And it's a little genetic twist. I found out. And that means if me and Jimmy are sleeping outside like we used to do as human beings, the sun comes to the horizon, it exposes us to daylight, and inside of daylight there's an energy wave called blue light, and that blue light will enter little light receptors, even with our eyes closed. It'll trigger a little gland called the pineal gland into producing a thing called serotonin. And serotonin will then tell the brain to unsuppress everything and make you fully functional. Now, if you're a morning chronotype, there's a little genetic twist that means you're reacting to that light and that gland is reacting to that light almost immediately. Whereas in the other human being, let's say it's you, Jimmy, in your gland, that that light is not getting through into that gland and triggering that process. I'm talking very loosely. Anybody who knows about this clinically will be going, Nick doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm just trying to keep it simple. So basically, Jimmy's got a two-hour phase delay, whereas Nick triggered straight away. So that's what a chronotype is. It means that there are certain periods in any 24 hours where you, as a human being, would be able to function more comfortably. We can override it. We can camouflage it. You can ignore it. But I think it doesn't take too many questions to find out with all the people who influence you, your partners, you know, the kids, this, the colleagues at work, your mates who go to the gym with you, whatever it is, it doesn't take much to very quickly go, you're a nighttime, aren't you? And you're definitely a morning type, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah. So... That little factor is when you start to look at all the outside influences and your own approach. Of course, you can't change the world. But all the PMs start their day in an AMers world. 
they don't start work at nine or ten o'clock in the morning when they feel more natural to do that they have to get themselves out of bed they push themselves into the day and drag themselves into the day so when you look at any organization or any individual if the coach is a nighttime chronotype and the athlete is a morning chronotype you can ignore that if you want but if you're more aware of those influences you can make so if you're going to the gym at 6 30 in the morning to do some training before you go to work or whatever it is or part of a, an elite training program if you know you're a nighttime chronotype you've got to get up at least 90 minutes earlier than that because you need to get exposed to lots of light to get this process going before you hit the gym. The AM can do it a bit quicker, right? So when you're looking at how groups work, impact together, even like children at school and the teachers and everybody, you can start to spot very clearly where your gains are because you are asking that group of people to do their exams at nine o'clock in the morning in the same classroom as that group of people who were already had breakfast, got exposed to light, got their uniforms on, loved that part of the day. So that exam is easy. But if you're a nighttime chronotype and you're 30 minutes away from the school, you were still hitting the snooze button at 27 minutes past eight. You didn't grab breakfast. You had a quick drink. You're pulling yourself into the world and you're still half asleep because you've not got that hormone triggering everything. So who in their right mind would want to see their child sat in a room in one of the most important moments of their life when they're still actually in some sort of sleep recovery state? Never mind before they got there. And so in elite performance, you would probably put a smile on your face, Jimmy, but and from your background and, and what you do with psychology and uh and everything else it really is a little journey where you can find little things here there and everywhere and everybody's approach and and strangely enough if you identify them and you work with them a little bit more in a more synchronized way in a practical and achievable way you know we can't change the world but all of those little things as my work with british cycling and team sky back in 2008 into 2012 london 2012 it was all about the aggregation of marginal gains and that's what it is if you wander through those seven ksris you think about number one is circadian rhythms tap it in your browser number two is identify with your chronotype and everybody else around you you could make subtle little adjustments in any period of your life that really will help the overall approach thinking cycles number three you know, think about 16, 90 minute cycles, try to think about rhythm, try to think about, you know, that sort of type of approach, which we touched on. Then you go number five, which is pre and you go pre and post routines, right? Think about your sleep as what you do from the point of your anchor point, your wake, not just before you go to sleep. It's almost too late, right? It's too late now. Uh, it's all about light to dark, warm to cool. That's it. Anything else you can bring into that period, fine. But you do understand that if you haven't been doing it from the point of wake, you're not going to put it completely right, right before you go to sleep. Then you get number five, which is a more 
unworried approach to a balance, a harmony between recovery and recovery activity, mental and physical activities and mental and physical recovery activities. It's not doing nothing. They combine together to make you optimized. Number six is where a lot of people go when they try to, oh, I'm not sleeping well. I need to get an isolated solution. No. So number six is environment, you know, the bedroom. <laughs> and it might be sound, sensory, colors, uh, blackout blinds, I don't know, whatever, you know, and, and, and things like that. Well, I coach people to sleep anywhere, anytime, and anything in any place, because that's what we do as humans. <laughs> you know, that's what we do. So there's the sort of where we choose to sleep, where we have to choose to sleep, you know, on a plane, on a train, in a hotel, at a friend's house, in this apartment block in the city for one period of your life, and now you're out in the countryside and sort of thing. So where and then sometimes you might be in a tent up the mountains or on the side of a cliff or camping so if you've got a this approach you can sleep anywhere anytime in any way any place so don't think that these environments are going to have that much of an impact it's nice to have a bedroom and a boudoir and a private sanctuary and do certain things with it but if you're not doing the other things then it's not going to have that impact and number seven is product you know, I said when I was a director of a big company, you know, get a new mattress, get a new pillow, get some eye masks, get some supplements, you know, get some sounds, get a tracker, get as many products as you want. But they won't, they won't have that impact. You can bring them in. So the little journey through those seven areas is about awareness, understanding. It'll all aggregate up in a practical, achievable way that you can redefine your approach, the way you're going about it. And then it puts you in a far more considered state to bring in any interventions, right? Because you know what's going on. I have a, a tracker here, right? Because I'm doing a project for a company. But I need to know how to interpret that stuff. Because sometimes it doesn't correlate to how I actually feel. So yeah, is that going to create more anxiety and stress that I wake up and this tracker says, oh, you're only 70% recovered. Are you not going to go to school? Are you not going to go to work? Are you not going to do this podcast with me today? Are you not going to train? Are you not going to that World Cup final? No, of course you are. But having an understanding is much better than anything else. So those are the, the, the seven little steps I am conscious of time, Nick, so I won't keep you much longer. Uh, in a conversation about trying to improve sleep, we're talking about getting more light, which in a way might seem a little counterintuitive because the message we have been told for so long is to avoid light before bed, avoid blue lights. Well, that's, you know, when you mentioned before, you know, myths, misunderstandings, interpretations so immediately what happens is we're not talking to we're not providing educational platforms we're not talking to children let's say or the that generation we're not talking to them about there is blue light in daylight the blue light is energy free energy it creates this hormone called serotonin serotonin tells your brain to make you fully functional 
and will help you in absolutely everything, right? This is mood, motivation, awareness, alertness, appetite, dealing with stress, dealing with anxiety, dealing with positive, dealing with negative. It's a wonderful thing. There's also this other thing called melatonin. And melatonin is produced in the same gland, but that is diminished light. Now, what is diminished light? It's not dark. It's, it's yellow light, orange light, red light. It's just no blue light. Right? So you can still be running around active in a light environment. Um, but as long as the level of blue light is low enough so that you are continuing to produce melatonin in the third phase of your day and not serotonin. So what do we do without that knowledge? We bring in technology. We can't get the kids to go to bed. They're on their pads. They're doing everything like So what do we tell them to do? Instead of trying to help them manage their interact, their, their activity online, we may give them a fear factor and say the blue light that's coming off your tech is going to keep you awake all night. So shut your tech down. But then the clever thing that the world does is then produce glasses that you can wear that stops the blue light doing that, but you still remain active. Right? So it's like, as soon as I started hearing that, I went, Oh, here we go again. We're trying to put a plaster on something that doesn't need a plaster. You just need to educate them. So I, you know, maybe if anybody's listened to me before, sorry, but there you go, you asked the question. So I just got one afternoon with a bunch of young kids, young athletes, and we just went onto the app store and I downloaded a free Lux light meter. Not scientific, it just used the camera on the phone and i'm going well i'm sat here and it says 200 lux but just move it there it's gone to oh 150 look i'll just move over there go near there i go near there well it's hardly 300 lux where we're standing guys but it's a nice bright room isn't it what does that mean well if i go over by this window into my garden it's now 5,000 lux I've even got this lamp on my desk that's producing 10,000 lux. So within a meter of where I'm sat is the difference between a couple of hundred lux and 5,000. There's only glass there. If I step outside or just open the window and put it outside, it's now 78,000 lux. So within a meter of where I'm sat, there's light all around me. But what I get a relationship with is where I'm sat right now, with just a few hundred lux, is that my brain is getting melatonin triggers to suppress me from that little gland because I'm actually in diminished light. As soon as I step by that window, bang, the opposite. As soon as I step outside, wow. Right? So that whole relationship with light is once you know that, like I said, the person who's sat on a bench eating their lunch when they can I like doing that. They suddenly realize that they're now sat in 80,000 lux. And that 80,000 lux has got blue light in it. And that blue light is going into them and making them feel life's not that bad, really, is it? I'm looking forward to this afternoon. I'm looking forward to this evening. You know, it's doing all of that while you're sat on that bench. And if you can't sat on a bench, then sit in your office and 
recreate it with a lamp or something, you know, to keep that balance going. So just fascinating that, you know, it's just sometimes these things come out, which just make it worse because now the kids are scared of blue light. You get diffusers on your devices. There's hardly anything coming off it anyway. Manage your tech uh, interaction. Use your tech and devices for really positive things. Just manage it a little bit better. Have a, a nice 90-minute rhythm to your day so that you, you're quite happy to shut down stuff at, at 9.30 at night or 10 o'clock because you're not trying to go to sleep till 12.30. So it creates more space. To not worry about it and then this and then i get people who's you know there's nothing wrong with blue blocker blocker glasses for example we use them all the time to manage the under and over exposure when you're traveling around the world or you're going through the seasons right that's what you use them for it's not just all about your tech shutdown right? so it gets confusing so oh blue blockers are bad for you no not if you use them like this blue blockers are good for you well yeah only if you use them like this <laughs> It's all of that stuff which just gets really messy and a little bit of a, you know, anybody listening to this, just jump in your app store, grab a free, don't pay for one, not at this stage, just get a free Lux Light Meter, LUX, put it on your phone and just wander around everywhere you go and you'll just start to get fascinated. And before too long, you'll be going into the browser and you'll be looking at circadian rhythms, you'll be looking at chronotypes, you'll be looking at Lux Levels average human lux levels of 10,000 lux in the first two phases of the day from sunrise to sunset. You'll be looking at an average of 1,000 lux every 90 minutes. So if I sit here for 30 minutes, I need to go and stand by that window for five minutes to raise my levels of exposure to lux to keep my hormones balanced in the right areas of the day, you know? And you'll know a lot about that, won't you, Jimmy? And just to reiterate, a controlled recovery period is not sleeping necessarily it's a little exercise or a timeout that allows you to mentally detach like maybe reading a book or deep breathing or progressive muscle relaxation things that we can incorporate throughout our day to help us transition into that sleep phase oh yeah 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 you can you can you know you can deep dive into all sorts of areas um you know, binaural beach, you've got meditation, mindfulness, all that sort of stuff, everything else. But it, it can be just you're sat at your desk like I'm sat at my desk here. I can have something on my screen. I can have something in my headphones. And I'm in my office. But just like that graveyard slot in business is if I just put something different on my screen, or I read a book, or I listen to something. It's just a few little moments, a few minutes. You know, as well as I, if I'm looking at you all the time with that picture behind you and trying to focus, this is what my brain is processing. If I just look out of that window for two minutes, what my brain is processing is different. It creates different emotions, different feelings, because I'm looking out the window. So it's a couple of minutes. I'm not trying to sleep, am I? I'm just creating a little controlled recovery break i might have a uh, a hydration bottle on my desk jimmy half fill it because once you've taken some hydration from that bottle it's now nearly empty so you get up and go and half fill it again 
maybe by a window, maybe in a kitchen. So what it's doing is the best way to describe those, um, even like the 30 minute longer CRP, is because you're not trying to focus to go into a sleep state. Um, it's just doing doing little things that are, you know, personal to you that that, that means something. And the, and the worst thing you do is tell people you're doing them because they then get judged. So it's not a nap. You're not a snoozer for loser, right? Uh, what you're actually is a winner and you're healthier and you're more productive and you're not, you know, the impact of mental health and well-being is not as severe as it could be. All of these facts. And that's because you take 30 minutes out for yourself. You're not even trying to go to sleep, but that little 30 minutes takes all the pressure off your phase three, right? Into the evening. It gives you more chance. And if you, if you allocate that time every day, your brain gets that rhythm it understands what's going on. And every now and again, it'll give you a little nudge and say, Jimmy, we're likely to go into a sleep state in our little 30 minutes. So let's go somewhere a little quieter. You know, let's go and sit in the car in the car park or whatever it is, because we're likely, but even stay in your chair because it won't be long, but we just might nod it out like we do on a tube or a train or the back of a car or in a meeting. We just might nod it out. So you... You start to get that real feeling that you're doing things in the right way and you're getting, you're working with your brain in that particular way. And it's fascinating. I, I love it when people come up with their own CRPs because they can be, you know, that little 30 minute slot in the afternoon, they could be taking the dog a walk outside, <laughs> you know, even if it's freezing and dark or even if it's sunny, it, it's just, little factors like that isn't it it's just when do you go shopping for something or when do you go and pick something up it's is that you you're always thinking about there's my little 30 minutes for me and that might be just going to the shops walking to the shops and buying some food for tonight and then you carry on working when you get back or it, it might be playing a few chords on the guitar because you're trying to learn how to play the guitar. And just learning a couple of extra chords in that 20 minutes really helps with everything else. You know, Absolutely fascinating. I call them controlled recovery periods because I want to avoid anybody thinking that this is snoozing for losing. This is recovery moments for no reason. Uh, it's not in the slightest. They're positive, proactive things that you are doing, how simple it might sound, that they all add up to make you a better person overall now and for the future. Brilliant. I try to incorporate something from every podcast. So I, I've been fortunate to speak to some cool people who do some cool things. I try to learn something from everyone. My own personal belief is that off the pitch is as important as on the pitch. So for me, sleep is a big one. For the likes of myself who are interested in sports psychology and for other trainee sports psychologists, what might be a good starting point for us to incorporate this into our work? Um, well, I think hopefully, you know, what you've gathered from anything you know about the work I do or the, the, or the subject matter in your own experience is that it's, it's to change their... You don't... You will know. Is there's no point telling somebody to stop doing that or do that because uh, they probably won't, because things will get in the way. As a coach, you take them on a journey. 
and they suddenly end up over there and they didn't realize it so i think the trick is 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 with your perspective is is like it's not about the these key health pillars uh, their eating habits and training and everything else their activities while they're awakened with coaches it's not about being asleep at night what it is is thinking about it's a 24-hour rolling process so everything is interlinked right so all the things that you're trying to deal with maybe from a psychological standpoint is all focused on everything they're doing while they're awake when actually the real benefits is their recovery activities that will really help that whole process so you sort of bring it to the first number one health pillar and stop talk about it as this is the human recovery performance pillar this one if we can optimize it our approach every day and we do these certain little things intertwined with all the other things we want, then the targets and the goals and all the objectives we've got in there and everything we're trying to achieve has got an increased percentage of actually being revealed or, you know, achieved. So that's what it's about. If we don't look at it like a 24-hour process and just focus this on point of weight, stop, you go to sleep, see you tomorrow, if we look at it like that, we're wasting... 30 odd percent every day in hours in time why let's go and at least get five percent out of that period for me and you to at least perform better to do things better to get our you know data more consistent let's just grab five percent of it not just waste 30 percent of it so you bring it in as I think the one thing was you could do is if you you chop somebody's 24 hours, I'm just picking numbers, but you go, uh, this is how long we train today. That's what we talked to. This is how long we spent, uh, you know, buying food, preparing it, eating it sort of thing. This is how much time we were in the physio room. This is how much time we were over there with the medic. This is how much time we were with our family. This is how much time you were on your 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 devices this is yeah 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 none of those things get anywhere close to the eight nine ten hours you allocated to sleep every 24 hours not even close we don't do anything every day that gets to that because by the time you think of you know 11 into 6 30 those five 90 minute cycles or your eight hours you're starting to worry and think about sleep probably from eight o'clock, nine o'clock, you know, so things are starting to get, woo, will I get to sleep? Will I get enough sleep? Will I wake up at two o'clock? So, and then, you know, how quickly do you get going in the morning once you start your day? Is it an hour into it, 30 minutes into it, once you've had a shower or got something done? So when you actually look at it with an athlete, you go, we're allocating over nine hours, every 24 hours for this. As a percentage, it's way, way above everything else that we do. So surely there's got to be some gains in there for us both. Got to be. Let's go and look for them. 
and bring them out because that's where our success factors are not in the obvious things we're doing now what about that black hole we don't even try <laughs> nick thank you i really enjoyed that yeah well it's kind of obvious isn't it? it i love it when that's why i say you know a lot of people say well I think I've heard that before or read that somewhere before. And yeah, yeah, we're over 30, you know, it's 33%, is it eight hours of 24? It's a long time, isn't it? More than anything else we do. It's 30% of your life should be taken seriously. I said, well, are you? Because you, you keep reading these things, but it's over a third of your life. Wow. It's really important. Wow. 30% of every day. Wow. More than anything else that you do. Wow. Give me anything that you're doing that we can grab a little bit of that time and make it more productive in the rest of our day. And for the most majority, it might is they can't answer that question. It's interesting, I suppose, really. It's it's like that saying, common sense is not always common practice. And you're right, we probably have heard all these things and in theory we know all this, but we don't do it. No, and and it's sort of like, oh yeah, I've heard of owls and larks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm definitely a, a morning person. Oh, are you? That's cool. Yeah. Uh, my wife isn't though, or well, my partner isn't. Oh no, they're definitely nighttime. Oh. Are you two doing anything together to manage that process? Are you both going to the gym in the morning at five o'clock? Because you want to go to the gym at five o'clock. Are you just dragging your partner along because you both want to do things together? What do you do here? What do you do there? What do you... uh -huh. Anything at all? No. But I know I'm a morning cronin, so. <laughs> what job do you do? Well, I work night shifts. Oh, great. <laughs> you do realise that if you don't redefine your approach as an AM chronotype, working night shifts, if you don't have some approach to that, that is going to have a dramatic effect on you. Right? Way beyond how you feel. You will be creating things going on where your brain is being challenged way, way too much every day to constantly keep adapting, to constantly doing that. And, and your levels of recovery are going to be you know, pretty damn low. You'll still do it and you'll still do your job and you'll still probably perceive you're being successful. But I wouldn't do it for too long. <laughs> nah, wouldn't do it for too long. There's a, the US has made a decision, as far as I'm aware, because you can't trust everything these days you read, but as far as I'm aware, they are going to remove daylight saving time when we shift clocks uh, in October next year, 2023. So normally you get round to October and you will shift your clock and in March, forwards and backwards. And that was created in the war years, terrible years, to create more daylight time to be more active right, throughout the summer. But it also creates seasonal affective disorder, which is our relationship with light. So it's dark at four o'clock. It's the winter. It has quite a, a big impact on us, including, you know, kids and schooling and, and their formative growth years. It, it only actually is applied to quite a small percentage of the human population. When you look at a map of daylight saving time, there's loads of countries that just don't do it. There's 
places in Europe and America that, that still adopt this day, daylight saving time shift. When we know how, how we're making human life more difficult with this, the big decision to change it is quite an economical big factor, but most of the world don't even go near it, right? So it's kind of, like you said, something like, it, it's very obvious that was produced. We invented light. Are we managing it and using it to our full advantage or letting it just impact on us without knowledge? We invented, you know, we we had polyphasic sleeping, which was absolutely not. And then we invented monophasic sleeping. And then the generations shift along. How difficult is it for that for us to do that? We don't have to change it. Very obvious, I'm not making this up. We have technology that, uh, you know, when I was up until the mid-90s, I had loads of recovery breaks, Jimmy. Right? Loads of them. They weren't planned for. But I could sit there making notes on my pad with my fancy little pad and my pen. I could make as many notes as whatever, but I couldn't do anything with them. You know, And probably by the time I got to the end of that journey... I probably decided that most of the things I wrote down, I don't want to do anyway. I'd be people watching. I'd be, you know, there's so many spaces that we had recovery and they weren't planned for. So we're not like going back in time. It's just we have not kept those vital recovery periods in our everyday life while we continue to bring other things in that constantly put that under pressure. So it's no surprise, Jimmy that our mental health and well-being perspective or however you want to look at it uh, is under significant pressure because we've just not kept <laughs> we've just not kept some of these things going incorporate them into what we're doing we just let them go i think it's it's very much about the now we have to think about the future athletes are only worried about what they're going to achieve when they need to achieve it uh, and so I think we're all a bit like that. And uh, I wouldn't wait. I wouldn't wait until, you know, you get to a point where you get your eight hours, three, six, five all the time, because I don't think it'll ever come your way, whatever you do. So I do something positive differently now. There you have it. Thanks for listening. That was Nick Littlehills. If you want to know more about Nick's work, you can follow him at Sleep Sport Coach on Twitter and Instagram. His website is sportsleepcoach.com and his book Sleep, The Myth of Eight Hours, The Power of Naps and The New Plan to Recharge Your Body and Mind is available from the website I mentioned, Amazon and Waterstones. If you want to get in touch with me with a question or a comment or you want to learn a bit more about sports psychology, drop an email to jimmy.williams at outlook.ie. Cheers. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our latest episode. If you listen on an Apple device, please consider leaving a review and a five-star rating.